When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each, of, on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. This is God's word. Well, uh, thanks, Nathan. And let me uh, pray one more time before we join in. Uh, Father, I pray that you would work in this time, that you would speak to us, that you would lead us into truths that are helpful and practical, um, that we would pray more as a result of what we hear today. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So I, as I mentioned earlier, this is Pentecost Sunday, and uh, the, the scripture that Nathan just read to us is about what is commonly understood as the day of Pentecost. I mentioned to you as, uh, just a moment ago, um, it was not the day of Pentecost, it was a day of Pentecost, as that was a repeating holiday for Jewish people. But the reason that I chose this scripture was because it's on the calendar today, and we're talking about prayer and actually, this, this, even though we didn't read the, uh, the whole kind of narrative at the beginning of Acts, um, there is prayer going on after this. And if you read just a little further, as I will in a moment, you'll see that prayer was a result of this uh, event. So prayer kind of bookends this really incredible and powerful uh, moment in the Christian church. So that's uh, what we're talking about today, prayer. So at our, uh, at our daughter's softball game um, last weekend, there was this hour and a half break between games. And uh, I've been trying to, trying to kind of keep getting my steps in and stay active. So I decided I was gonna walk around and pray. And I would say that as I walked around the park, I tried to pray. Um, and I say tried because it's always kind of an elusive thing to me. Um, I don't know about, about some of you, but it is not the most natural movement of my being. I find it hard to concentrate on conversing to someone who is not perceptible to me in the moment. Um, and if I'm honest, it's uh, especially a, an interesting thing for me to kind of mind talk, as I would uh, maybe describe it, and, and like walk around and talk silently. Um, it's something I struggle to stay focused on and I can kind of find myself in an uncomfortable place when I do it. And I'm the pastor of the church, right? So I wonder what, what it's like for you. That's something I'm curious about. What's, what's it like for you? I, I assume there's a lot of angles. Um, 
some of us here may find it to be the most natural of things to do. In fact, in your uh, journey of trying to be religious or Christian or whatever, maybe it's the most comfortable thing you do. I, I hear that from some people. Um, I hear people uh, who think that they need to kind of like kick into a more passionate uh, mode of, of being when they pray, that they need to like go into kind of a spiritual hyperdrive and that's hard for them to do. Um, for some, it feels like a topic that's kind of dreaded because there's always this guilt of like, yeah, I don't do it enough. Um, if you bring up prayer, it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't pray enough. I, I should pray more. It's just, uh, you know, I'm busy. Um, and so I, I, think it's, I think it's a thing we think about a lot. And it's this huge piece of the Christian life that can be kind of elusive. Um, we are, for this part of the summer, going to be looking at things Christians do. Okay, this is like the basic things. So what I, what I want this to be is when, you know, if I were to go ask anybody on the street, what do Christians do? And they were to kind of list off the answer. Well, I think they pray. I think they read the Bible. Seems like they sing. They're always giving their money to stuff. We're just going to look at those things and say, so what are those and why do we do them? And today is prayer. So I need to frame the, uh, the context of the scripture that Nathan read for us so we can understand it a little bit better. This is from the book of Acts. Acts is written by a lawyer and historian named Luke. And he wrote a biography of Jesus that we call Luke. He would not have called it that because, um, you know, he wouldn't name a biography about somebody else after himself, right? Why would you? Um, but he wrote Luke and then he wrote Acts. And Acts is actually the Acts of the Apostles. It's the early church and what they did. So he wrote a biography of Jesus and a history of the early church. And it begins with the disciples' final interaction with Jesus. And this is a really an incredible moment if you think about it. Um, this is the hardest to believe piece of Christianity. And that is that after Jesus, this human, right, as we just discussed with the kids, um, had walked the earth and had taught and been rejected and had a trial and was crucified and buried, that he rose from the dead and then walked around and spoke with people and was seen at one point, the Apostle Paul says, by over 500 people in one moment. And maybe it was this very time that Acts is recording, it doesn't say. But Jesus is alive again and communicating with people. This is unbelievable. Really, this is like, it's only, if it's happened, it's happened once. So Paul says that over 500 people saw Jesus. Now think about this. Um, the letters of Paul were circulated all throughout the Christian church, the early Christian church, which grew exponentially. And that's why Luke is telling its story. And we don't know of any, you know, historical documents that say that Luke is a, a terrible person or that these disciples turned out to be crooks actually and were actually just taking everybody's money or something like that. People may not have believed that Jesus rose from the dead, but they believed that the disciples believed it, right? That, that's what we see in history. They believed that the disciples believed it. They knew that they were sincere. You would expect, um, you know, if a person like Luke was, was making up a story 
that was just totally false. You would expect in the historical record for him to be trashed as kind of a, you know, a fraud and a terrible person, but you don't, you don't see that. You see that the Christians are actually, you know, they're viewed as sincere and extremely devoted. I, I read a, a really great article about Tim Keller who, who died recently. And one of the things that's so encouraging, because it doesn't always happen, was people said, look, here's a, here's a man who followed Jesus and he didn't ever get embroiled in any scandals. He, he actually um, consistently followed Jesus. That's the way that these early disciples are viewed. Maybe people didn't agree with their premises, but they believed that they believed what they said that they believed. Um, the disciples, by the way, believed it enough to give their entire lives to Jesus. And that's another shocking thing. Um, you don't see very often um, people living, dying, and serving others when they have nothing to gain themselves. You'll see, you'll see it when, when people... Um, have everything to gain themselves or it's about themselves. But these disciples, they poured their lives out for others. They gave their entire lives. And the most reasonable reason they did that is because they believed that Jesus had actually risen from the dead and was going to return as he said he would. And that's what's happening in the beginning of the book of Acts is Jesus has, he's talking to them. He's being Ascended here, he's ascending away from the earth. He's leaving them and he's saying, I'm going to give you my spirit and you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And we see the disciples responding out of that, and that is how they actually lived. Um, they devoted themselves to the work. The next thing you see in Acts after Jesus ascends and he gives them their kind of mission to go out into the world is they get to work. Um, they look at their group, there were 12 of them. And Jesus had commissioned them all to, to go out into the world and do the work. But Judas, one of the 12, had betrayed Jesus. And he wasn't there anymore because he'd committed suicide, which is hard to deal with. And they looked at this situation. And they said, we need to find a replacement. And so they looked around and they picked a guy named Matthias. And they put him into place and they got him to work. And they all started kind of focusing on where do we go? Who do we talk to? Um, they're starting to think about what do, we, what do we do with what Jesus has said? And then comes this day of Pentecost, this ancient holiday where they celebrated the first fruits of the harvest. And they were gathered together. They were, they were all in one place. And the spirit of God comes into that space and into them. And they, and they have this incredible moment where they begin speaking in other languages. So the word tongues there, it's an interesting thing that our... Um, our Bibles even still sometimes use the word tongues because in the, in the English language, what the word were really like, what we should read there is just simply languages. They began speaking in other languages, which is why people understood them in other languages. They were people from all these different places of the earth. And they, and they said, how are they speaking? How are they speaking in my, I'm, I'm an Arabian, I'm a Persian. How are they speaking in my language? And they heard them describing what Jesus had done and, and actually just the wonderful works of God in their own languages. And if this is all because God's spirit had come and enabled them to do something they could never have done on their own. And they believed that here Jesus was supernaturally beginning the work that he had promised that he was going to do 
when he left them. This is, I know, an incredible thing to believe. Um, It's at the core of what Christians believe, but it's the hardest thing to believe. And these people who, who heard this and they were convinced, they all go home and they start to tell this story and you start to see Christian communities multiplying and popping up all over the place. So this all begins on the day of Pentecost. I've got, this is probably what you should think of when you think of Pentecost. Like, first fruits of the harvest. They got together and they had like bread and milk and cheese and they thanked God for the things that he provided for them. And on this particular day, God actually also gave them his spirit, which was an incredible thing. Okay. And they began to speak in these other languages. So this, um, this moment, when you look at the book of Acts was preceded by them praying and getting to work. And then here's what happened afterward. This is what Luke records. After this happened, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship with one another, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, they attended the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, day by day to those who are being saved. So what's the effect of the spirit filling them? They eat together. They talk about Jesus together. They listen to the apostles teaching. They see people coming to Jesus and they went to the temple. Like, okay, that's kind of normal stuff. But they did it with devoted hearts. So tonight we're focusing on prayer. Like I said, prayer was happening before this incredible event. Prayer was happening after this incredible event. These portions of Acts don't tell us how or what they were praying that day. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say that they prayed for that specific thing to happen. It doesn't say. Um, The Bible actually spells out less than you'd expect on prayer in general. There's no direction that you need to bow when you pray. There's no script. Um, Eventually in the Bible, there would be Psalms that would be like re-prayed in song form among God's people, but there's not, there aren't scripts of here's how you pray and here's how you get it right. The first hint about prayer in the Bible is in Genesis 4, And people are in absolute despair. They're looking back to a promise God had made in Genesis 3. And it says simply that they began to cry out to God. It doesn't say what they said. It just says they begin to cry out to God. And you you can assume, reading between the lines, to keep his promise that they've been waiting for. The first formally recorded prayers are in Genesis 13. And here Abraham is looking at Lot, who is in his family and is he has just heard that God is going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot along with them. And you hear Abraham begging God to save the city over and over again. Those are the first recorded prayers in the Bible. The most comprehensive teaching on, the, on prayer in the Bible is in the New Testament when Jesus teaches his disciples in Matthew 6 in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which was probably a sermon that he repeated many times. That was probably recorded there, repeated many times. And that's where we get what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is what Josh just referenced when he was up here praying. He followed the format of the Lord's Prayer. 
And here's what Jesus said when he taught them, okay? This is a little bit long, but you need this context. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they can be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, how do we pray? That's what Jesus said. Now, you'll notice when you begin reading further in the Bible, the Lord's Prayer is never repeated exactly, ever. We don't see it in any of the prayers. Jesus actually never prays it exactly. He, we see prayers of Jesus, and he never says that exactly. So it must have been more of a pattern than a script. It orders the priorities from an acknowledgement and worship of God down to asking God for our needs and help and forgiveness. So we look to the Lord's Prayer as a pattern, and I believe from there we talk to God. And I would say naturally, but with a sense of reverence. I'm thinking that when Abraham begged for his family member and, and he saw the impending destruction of this city, that he begged with God the way he would have begged any king or any other like authority figure in his life, that he spoke to him the same way with that kind of vigor because he was just deeply concerned. I think that before this, even though not recorded prayers, that we have to look at Adam and Eve in the garden where they walked with God. And we have to think about that. Like, what would it look like to take a walk with our creator and converse Maybe a way of thinking about it would be a reverent version of yourself. <laughs> Prayer would be bringing a reverent version of yourself. I want to go a little further, though, and look at what not to do. Okay. And we're going to go what not to do, what's optional, what to do. Um, what not to do. It's evident in Jesus' teaching, we do not pray to show off or prove ourselves. We do not do it to be seen or to impress others. Now, I don't know, some of us have church backgrounds, some of us don't. I do, 
And I was indirectly and accidentally, I think, taught the opposite of this. I was actually taught that what you should do as a Christian when you go out to a restaurant is you should pray so that the people of the restaurant can see you and see your witness of being a Christian. What is that? It's praying to be seen, right? That's like the opposite of what Jesus said to do. He said, don't pray to be seen. That's not a good reason. Sometimes I think we pray to prove ourselves. Have you ever felt when you've been asked to pray that you need to pray very well? I feel this pressure almost every single time. To pray something very thoughtful, maybe accurate, really deep. I watch this sometimes when I'll do counseling sessions with people who aren't like coming from a church background. I'll ask if they're comfortable with prayer and they, they get really hesitant. And it, why is that? I don't know. I, I don't think I'm going to sound very good. It's, it's kind of this natural thing that we do. But I, I think that for some of us who grew up around church, there really is this like one-upmanship of the prayer circle where you feel like I need to pray better than the person that prayed before me. Um, my dad, I've told this story before, had literally the shortest mealtime prayer ever, and it was always the same. And he would, it was something to the effect of, dear Lord, thank you for this food. Bless it to the needs of our bodies in Jesus' name, amen. And that was just my whole life. And at one point, as a very wise teenager, he prayed that prayer, and I said, can't you come up with anything else? And my dad looked at me and he said, I suppose I could go on and on like a hypocrite if you'd like. And I was like, oh. Kind of sounds like what Jesus said. Oops. Sometimes we pray to prove ourselves. Maybe it'd be better to pray something short and simple. Jesus actually tells us to pray in secret most of the time. And I think if we pray publicly, it should absolutely not be to be seen. And we should really check our motives. Now, this is complicated to me when praying in groups. And clearly, people pray in groups. Actually, before and after the day of Pentecost, the disciples prayed together, right? So they weren't alone. But these were disciples speaking to their same master, to the same person. Church prayer meetings also should not be displays for others to see. But it can be uncomfortable to pray in front of others. I feel it. I'm sure all of us do. And so... I'm just going to tell you what I do to try to manage that. Um, I try to imagine speaking to God as if they are one of the other people in the room. I try to think, if I were to speak to John across the prayer circle from me, how would I talk? What would I ask? And imagine that John can actually meet my needs. I mean, that's, you know, see, he, he's, he could sometimes. You know, if I said, can I have a cookie? Yeah, he can do that. But, but just... To imagine a person in the room, how would I talk? What would I say? How would I ask? How would I be honest with them? And then speak using your normal voice and asking the questions you really have. Don't, not performing. Don't perform for anybody. That, that's how I manage it, is I just imagine speaking to another person in the room. So there's some things not to do. Don't perform. Don't 
do it to show off. Jesus is pretty clear on that. Now, what's optional? I'm going to get really practical here. We're going to talk about closing eyes, what to do with your hands, the word amen, and uh, having a quiet time. And I'm going to put them in reverse order, okay? Um, Quiet times. There's nothing wrong with scheduling a quiet time. I don't want to hurt that sacred cow. But I am afraid that sometimes, actually, the like American idea of the quiet time that we've come up with actually restricts prayer to brief times in the day. Um, I also think it only works for a certain type of person. So if you pray best in a focused, solitary time, great, quiet time it is. But if you do not, that's okay. That doesn't mean you can't pray. It doesn't mean you're not good at prayer. Personally, I have found that I pray best when doing something else that doesn't require much concentration, myself. Um, Taking a walk, the reason I took the walk at at the softball game is because if I sat all by myself still, it's harder. If I walk and my feet are moving, it's easier. This is also how I tend to like to talk to all of you, if you've noticed. What do I want to do? I want to take walks with you. There's a reason for this. Just sitting, looking at you in the eye is harder for me than taking a stroll and kind of looking around. For me, the quiet time model doesn't work so well. Um, And if that's how you are, that's okay. All right? But if quiet time works and that helps you concentrate, great. Optional, all right? Saying amen. Um, You know, amen means like let it be or I agree. And so technically what we do when we say amen at the end of prayer is we pray a thing and then we step out of our body and say to ourselves, good prayer. That's technically what we do. It's a weird thing to do if, if we were to, you know, if, anyway. But in our day, that's not what it is, right? In our day, it's the signal that says, I'm done. So that, you know, optional. If you want to be grammatically correct, you can skip amen. It doesn't need to be said. But also, if you're in a circle of people that tend to say amen and you'd like to let them know you're done praying, throw it in there. You know, just know it means something else. It's, I think it's totally optional. Personally, I really love to like mean the words that I say. So I like to not say it. I like to pray and just be done. Sometimes that makes people feel uncomfortable. If I sense that's going on, I throw in an amen. All right, there you go. Practical. What to do with your hands. This gets to the, you know, what do you do? You do this, right? There's the, when you're, when you're a kid growing up in church, yep, right here, that's the other one, right? Bow your head, close your eyes, hands right here. Um, you know, Google pray, you get all these hands. Those are hard to come by. This seems to be the rebellious way of doing hands. Um, I don't know where these come from. Um, I, I, have a, I have a guess. I'm guessing kids used to hit each other when everybody's eyes were closed. That's my guess, that that some teacher was like, hey, hands together, interlocking fingers. Like, just please keep your hands to yourselves. Um, Prayer hands has no basis in the Bible. I'm not saying it's wrong. 
It's optional. Um, in the Bible, if there's anything people would do, it'd be that they would lift their hands in prayer. Um, but the, the, this or this, it's, it's just a cultural thing we do. Um, and it, you don't have to. It's really okay if you don't. Um, for me, sometimes I will kind of like open my hands like this. And to me, that's become a sign of being receptive to God. And I think that anything you do in prayer, like it should have meaning. It, it should, it, you know, you should be saying something. To me, that, that's offering receptivity to God. Um, that could be something to cultivate or try, but you don't have to do it. Um, yeah, closing your eyes. Again, I think this is invented for children. I, I seriously do. Like, why would you close your eyes? The Bible never tells you to close your eyes when you pray. Why would you? So you're not looking around at stuff, right? So you can stay focused. Except some of us, like with the quiet time thing, when I close my eyes, I am all over the map. Like when I close my eyes, I'm building stuff and going on vacation. It helps me to actually keep my eyes open and find a focal point, usually like out a window. The idea is to focus and to attempt to really speak honestly to God. Some of these things are optional. So there you go. What not to do, what's optional. Here's a few things we should do. The Lord's Prayer teaches us to put God and his will first as the number one thing that we're praying for. I think this might be one of the most challenging things for us. I think that usually when we come to God, we're thinking about ourselves. And I know that's what I do. And the Lord's Prayer challenges us to actually place God at the highest place in, our, in, in what we're asking for and in, in what we're connecting to. We should put God and his will at the top of our list and actually having a format to prayer that does that might be beneficial. The Lord's Prayer actually positions us as children before a father. And I know we don't all have the same like father stories, so that can be harder for some of us than others. But I would call this bold submission because a child should know that they are loved. A child should know that their parent would give them what is best for them. Maybe not what they want, but what is best for them. A good father chooses to give their child good gifts. And as a child matures, they will trust that their father's will is actually more wise than their own. That's what I, that's what I mean by bold submission. To come boldly before God, knowing he wants the best for us, but also to be saying at the same time, but I trust you more than me. I can ask you anything, but I trust you more than me. The early prayers of Genesis teach us to anchor in God's promises. The crying out in Genesis 4 is because God had promised something good. It's a cry out to him to, to the, you know, hoping, waiting for the day of the promise coming true. And this is a key thing for you to do that, for you to anchor your prayers in what God has promised. You have to know what God has promised. And this comes down to where Bible reading will come up. That's going to be the, one of the next things Christians do. We'll be reading the Bible. Why do you do that? To check a list so that you can say you're a good Christian? No. You're going to read the Bible so that you can know who your God is, what his will is, what his character is, so that when you pray and walk with him, you know how. You're reading his story. You're reading his words. 
If we want our prayers answered, then we, are, we should learn to pray for what he's promised to do and in line with his character. We spend a lot of time praying for the things he hasn't guaranteed to us, which are just the things that we want, okay? Bold submission says this, it is good to ask. A child asks their father for anything, but a sign of maturity is to understand and submit to your, yourself to his will, his kingdom, his character. Another sign of maturity is this, to not only pray, but to take action. There's a really good example of this right before I mentioned when the, the disciples chose Matthias to replace Judas. This is such an interesting moment. So they actually um, apparently have a list of potential 12th disciples, okay? And they whittle it down to two. And these two must have been very similar dudes because they couldn't decide between the two of them. So they had a list, they, they compared and contrasted, you know, yeah, Bartholomew, he, uh, well, there are, yeah, there was a Bartholomew. Let's see, another biblical name, I don't know. Stephanophanus, um, he's always out of town, he can't do this or whatever. And then there's, you know, Ralph and he's kind of unpredictable and he'll go off the handle sometimes. So you're out, you're out, you're out, we're down to these two. Okay, they got down to two and they weren't sure. So guess what they did? They pray and they ask God for help. And then comes the most surprising part to us. Like in our modern day, they like quite literally rolled dice. They cast lots. Like they, they whittled it down to two. They prayed for God to show them what to do. And then they're like, well, didn't hear anything. Matthias. And they went with it. And that's what happened. But they, they took action. Do you see? Like they used decision-making methods. They, they compared and contrast. This is the good old, like, I don't know how many times I've sat down with some of you all and you're trying to make the big life decision. I say, have you done a pro-con list? I'd start there. And then also pray. Do both. Like pray and take normal action. This is good. Um, Next, the, the first fully recorded prayer of Abraham teaches us that we should be praying for God's grace for other people, um, that God would have mercy on other people. This is absolutely in keeping with his will, no matter how unlikely it may seem. It's one of the biggest themes of the Bible, that God is gracious. So, review, we don't pray to prove ourselves in any way. There's a number of things that are optional. Pick whichever one helps you pray, that's okay. But we should pray with bold submission according to God's will, alongside wise action, and for the grace of God to be extended to others, okay? And I'll only add this, I doubt any of us are praying too much, so just go ahead and pray some more. There you go, all right? Um, okay, now I'm gonna go a little more into the power of prayer. There seems to be two schools of thought here. Number one, God only does things when we ask correctly and often enough. That's one school of thought. That's not me making a statement. One school of thought, he only does things when we ask right and often enough. So we have to make sure we pray right and often enough. Like, have you ever had that sort of thing happen? Like, my sister has cancer. I have to pray more to get this done. And then it doesn't go well. Did I pray enough, you think? Did I pray the right things? 
That's one school of thought. That can get you praying, but it's a lot of pressure. The other is the absolute flip side to that. God has a plan for everything, but we're still supposed to pray. We don't know why. That would be the other school of thought. God has everything already mapped out. We pray because I guess we're supposed to, though it makes no difference. Those seem to be the two schools of thought. The story we read tonight is actually a great case study because Peter follows up the day of Pentecost moment with a sermon. And he references the prophet Joel, who about four to 500 years previous to this predicted the day when the Holy Spirit would come into people and all kinds of people would be saved. And Peter says, that day is here right now, okay? So they had gotten together to pray, but then Peter says, what just happened today was predicted four to 500 years ago by the prophet Joel. And in a sense, was always the will of God. So, and then you look and it's the day of Pentecost. How meaningful would it have been for these people to go, wow, our church just grew by thousands of people on the day that we celebrate all the first fruits of the harvest. They would have connected the dots there like, wow, God, on the day that we celebrated the harvest, he brought all these people into the church. Like they didn't plan that. God planned that. So what was the role of their prayers in what happened? And why did they keep praying afterward? Would it have happened if they didn't pray, right? Now this gets back to what we already discussed, bold submission, asking for what God has already promised, asking for God's kingdom purposes to happen and asking God to work in the lives of others. I believe that the disciples were praying for God to do the things that he promised. They didn't know exactly how, they didn't know exactly what was gonna happen, but they were anchoring their prayers in the promises of God and asking God to work in the lives of other people. It is his will, though we may not know the plan. And they rejoiced in the fact that that came true. But think about it. God's people have been crying out for and anticipating these types of things for hundreds of years. Maybe like flashback 200 years before Jesus, smack in the middle of Joel and the day of Pentecost. Maybe people were praying for the spirit of God to come then and do something incredible. And it didn't happen then. Did that prayer work or not work? Now, here's the thing. The reason we tend to ask if a prayer works is we tend to think of prayer as like a magic ritual. We tend to think of prayer as something that like, if I get it right, if I get the, the seance right, that's uncomfortable to say, but it's how we think about it. If I get it right, it works. If I don't get it right, it won't work. That is not what prayer is. The power of prayer is not found in the prayer or the execution of the prayer. The power of the prayer is found in the one we are praying to, his will and his faithfulness. That's where the power lies, not in getting prayer right. Which leads to this last idea, the purpose of prayer. 
Now, if what I just said is true, the power of prayer is not found in the prayer itself, but in the one that we pray to, then why pray? That, that's the core question. Why cry out to God? Why ask God anything? And here at this moment, we have to zoom out and ask a bigger question. Why did God even make us? Why are we even involved? What are we doing? Like, what, why? Like, imagine, you know, you're God. And you kind of do whatever you want. Why make us and make us pray? Let alone, like, go to work and clean the bathroom and all the stuff we have to do. Well, there's a massive clue in this story of Pentecost, and it's, and it's the place, um, or it's the, it's the clue, it's the core of what the book of Acts is all about. Jesus had come to fulfill these ancient expectations. He was the hope that was being cried out for in the book of Genesis. He had come and he had died for unrighteous people like those that Abraham prayed for in Sodom and Gomorrah. He had overcome death and the grave on our behalf and he had just proved himself. He'd showed himself to all of his disciples and he promised them he would be with them until the end of the age, until he returns. Pentecost celebrated the food that God provided for all people in the earth's harvest. It, it celebrates his provision of our desires and our needs. And Jesus is meeting a deeper need, our need for a father in heaven, our need for mercy and forgiveness, the bread of life, the new wine of forgiveness. And Jesus is bringing about the very will of God, but why? At the core of it, why, why, why? What happens in the Pentecost story gives us the answer. The people are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that can sound mysterious. And there's a lot of like church baggage around these things, especially in my life. I don't know about yours. But at the core of what that means is this, that God's Spirit enters into intimate relationship with us, deeply known by God. That's what's happening. The spirit of God can be known deeply by us. It means that God is more present to us now than he was even when Jesus walked the earth. Isn't that hard to believe? But it's what Jesus said. I will be with you always. It means that God is always with us, exactly as Jesus said at, at the ascension. The Bible teaches us to pray and teaches us that Jesus is praying for us, actually. Romans 8.34 says Jesus is praying for us. But not only that, just before Romans 8 says that, it says that the Spirit of God is praying with us in ways that we can't even imagine, like, like taking the words we cannot form that we should pray to God and praying them for us. He's helping us. He's with us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. See, the entire creation is about this. God creating people who do not just know that he exists. Look, Eternal beings know that God exists. He didn't have to create us to do that. 
God, the scriptures say, exists in eternal community, Father, Son, and Spirit. God was not lonely. He was not incomplete. He did not create us to fill a void in himself. He created us because only imperfect creatures, sinners, if you will, can know him as their redeemer, can know him for his mercy and his grace. Only fallen people can experience that side of who God is. That is why he made us. We were made to be the only creatures in the vast cosmos who can know his unique and powerful grace. We are needy. We don't know what we need the most, but we can know him because of Jesus's redemption his mercy and his grace. And then he fills us with his spirit and invites us in near. We get to have deeply close relationship with Jesus with a knowledge of his mercy. See, prayer is often what we view as a tool to get things done. You know, we need more money at church, so we pray, right? I do that. Did that last week, right? As you all probably heard. Um, you get sick, you don't wanna be sick, so you pray. Um, we need a problem solved. I cannot get the airbag light on Abby's car done. And believe me, I have prayed that it would turn off. Um, I've done all these things, but often we view it only as a tool to get things done. But don't you see, um, it's, it's not that we can't ask for things, we can, but that's not what prayer is for. It's not a tool to get things done. God isn't a handyman we call when the drain is clogged, right? Prayer is God's invitation for us to know him deeply, to enter into his very heart for us and his heart for other people. It's to enter into a deep relationship with him through Jesus, the relationship of a, of a child to their father. It's a learning to ask for what he wills to do because you're getting acquainted with him, learning to know him and to desire what he desires to happen in the world. That's why the Lord's Prayer also includes in some of its renderings, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a person saying, I want to understand your will. I want to know you and what you want to happen in this world. And when prayer flows from that, it leads to knowing him more. And in that sense, it always works. It always leads to more intimate knowledge of God. That's what it's for. That's what it is. It doesn't matter if we see the results we desire or not because it settles us into his goodness into who he is. It's a space where we can ask for anything, but entrust ourselves into the hands of our maker. The apostle Paul um, describes it best, I think, here. Um, he says, do not be anxious about anything. Okay, how? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, which is a word for asking, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. Okay, and what's the result? The peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, it doesn't say, let your request be known to God and he'll answer it and give you what you want. It doesn't. Let him know, open up everything to him and you will receive the peace that comes with being connected to his heart and his mind. We can come to God with anything by his spirit and come away with the very peace that comes from being near our creator. Because prayer is not about getting things done. It's about knowing and walking with the one who made us, learning what he's promised and asking for it while entrusting our hearts to his goodness and his mercy. Before the holiday of Pentecost in Israel uh, came another holiday, the Passover. At Pentecost, they celebrated the the gift of God, the bread and the wine um, of the harvest. But at Passover, they remembered that God had passed over their sins by making a replacement sacrifice for them. And they also ate bread. They They ate bread that sustained them while judgment was being carried on Um, to their oppressors. And the last time Jesus celebrated that Passover meal with them, he took bread and wine from their table and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this every time that you eat of it and remember me. And he took the wine that was at the table, a wine which they would celebrate and think of God's goodness. And he said, this is my blood of a new covenant. It's poured out for your forgiveness And then he said, I I won't be drinking of this again until I drink it new with you in my kingdom. And he promised them he was going to return. All the ancient celebrations were pointing to something greater. And at Jesus' ascension, he pointed us to what's next. And that is that he returns and makes everything right again. That things return to the way that they're supposed to be. So now when we pray, we acknowledge his grace for us, what he's done on the cross, the work he's done in the lives of millions of other believers, but we cry out for the day when wrongs are made right, when justice rolls down like mighty waters, when sin and death are removed from God's creation, when we know God as well as he knows us by his spirit. And that day will come but we pray for it so that we can anchor our souls in the goodness of his promise and be connected to him while we wait. And in so doing, it will also be brought about. He works through our prayers, but not because of them. You don't have to pray right for him to listen to you, but he loves when your prayers reflect that you know who he is because that's what prayer is is for. So what we're doing now, what we're doing next is we're going to take two minutes to pray. Um, After that, we're going to do three things that the Christian church has always done. We're going to put our money together um, to fund the work of the church. You, You heard me read in the book of Acts, one of the results of the Holy Spirit coming and, and like enlivening all of their hearts as they started to put all their possessions in common and share them. Um, this is how we're talking about giving these days. We give in response to God's generosity to us as an expression of worship. It reminds us that all good things come from God and it reorients our hearts away from fear and self-protection to joy 
and gratitude. We don't give out of obligation, but as an act of love and sacrifice, acknowledging what God has given to us and giving as he does. Um, you all know if you're part of this church that that's what the tablet's for. There's our website and a QR code for that. By the way, for those of you who heard us talk about our AC down and our giving needs, thank you for responding to that in the last month or so. We really appreciate it. We're gonna sing together and consider these like memorable shared prayers. That's, that's kind of what they are. Um, that's what a good service of worship is, is when we express our hearts to God and remember who he is. And then we're gonna come forward and receive the Lord's Supper. And this is for anybody who can hear about the grace that Jesus offers and just say, I open my hand receptively. I want that. Just the simple act of faith. Jesus, I want to know you. That's where prayer starts. That's where giving starts. That's where receiving from Jesus begins to meet our deepest needs. So we come forward to him empty. We don't know his will or his way, but we come believing that he's given us everything that we need and that he will return and that all the wrongs will be made right. So I'm gonna pray for us at this time. Then I'm gonna leave two minutes of silence for you to pray and um, you know, just, just uh, exercise the muscle. Remember, just um, imagine talking to somebody who's uh, sitting right there with you and just tell them what you want to say. Ask them who they are, what their will for you is. Um, reflect on what you've read in the Bible, who God is and what he wants to do and pray for grace for others. So I'll pray and leave that space for you. Father in heaven, thank you for the uh, chance to be here with your people. You've worked in all of our lives in really powerful ways. Um, the fact that we can even boldly come here and, and speak to you speaks to your great mercy. If you truly are the God who created all things, if you truly are like a consuming fire, it's so incredible that you allow us to come before you like children. We don't have to get it right. We don't have to get the right formula or bow in the right direction. You're here. You want to know us. That's why you made us. And we thank you. So lead us now as we pray.